This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Pear. If you have a business, you need a website. Now, what's the best way to get a website up and running? Choose a website hosting company that makes it simple, like Pear Networks. Pear has over 20 years of experience managing the entire digital ecosystem for thousands of online businesses all around the world. Pear makes it easy for you with do-it-yourself website building tools and features, including simple drag-and-drop page design. And they have guaranteed U.S.-based support technicians ready to help you whenever you need it, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Right now, when you sign up with Pair Networks, you'll receive one free month of web hosting. See for yourself how easy it is to build your websites for free. Visit pair.com slash free to get your first month of uh, website hosting for free by using the code quick start that's pair.com slash free promo code quick start to get started today enjoy the episode it's the language of the universe but i don't understand it Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Math and Physics Podcast. I'm your host, Parker. And I'm Ray, and we welcome you back to episode number 95, where today we have Dr. Achanta Venugopal here with us, the director of the National Physical Laboratory of India and a fellow researcher at the TIFR. So, uh, Dr. Achanta, maybe you want to say a few words of hello to our audience, introduce yourself. Good morning. Yeah, uh, it, it's evening here in India, yeah. but uh, <laughs> it's good morning, Sunday morning. So thanks for uh, uh, tuning in on a Sunday morning. Right, I'm looking forward to this. This is exciting because this is my first time and uh, uh, interacting though um, it, it's a faceless interaction. Hopefully I'll be able to generate some interest in, in what I work on and what we do at NPL as well as at UFR. So look forward awesome. to this uh, podcast. Great, great. So we're going to dive into all of the interesting physics topics uh, that you are involved in. Uh, but before we actually get into the podcast, we have a quick little news introduction. Um, so in terms of the NFT giveaway, we are announcing the winner for last week's and also the next one coming up so we are giving away today the third nft in the collection and we did like a random number generator and we'll contact the winner on instagram but the winner is goncalo martin martins rice on instagram so we'll, that's we'll, their instagram handle we'll yeah. contact you and uh, we'll let you know that you won the third nft and so if you head over to our Instagram right now, we will have the fourth one being given away. Um, so yeah, we'll have all the rules on the on our Instagram on how to get in on that. Yeah, the NFT, as, uh, as we said right now, it means just for fun. But uh, a little bit later on in the podcast, I think we can actually make a use for these actual tokens. So let's see where it goes. Uh, continuing on a little bit, just a quick little news segment before we get in. Uh, followers are sitting at an calm and easy 25 21 500 
our downloads are again nearing even closer. I mean, closer every episode, right? Even closer to uh, the nice four hundred thousand. We're at three eighty right now, while our followers or subscribers on YouTube are twenty two fifty. I think we actually got more this week than we did last week, so that's always nice. So thank you to everyone who continues to follow, continues to subscribe. You know, keep doing that. If you're on YouTube, smash that like button for the algorithm. And if you're on Spotify, just rate it. Rate it five stars. Why not? <laughs> uh, and finally, for the comment of the week on YouTube, uh, this week's comment comes from the Idea Space. Actually, uh, Clément, who we interviewed last week, he left a comment. He says, awesome interview. Shout out to Parker and Ray for absolutely killing it. So if you want to be next week's comment of the week, Make sure to go over to our YouTube channel, subscribe, and leave a comment on this week's episode. Yep. I mean, that's basically it. I don't think we have anything else. Okay, so I think we can uh, safely get a little bit into the podcast. So we can start with uh, the classic question that uh, we happen to ask every single guest on this podcast. So Dr. Achanta, let me ask you, how did you get into the field of physics? Uh, Teachers? Obviously, teachers, mainly. Yeah. The, the teachers uh, got good teachers who could motivate me and put me to, um, I mean, channel me towards uh, physics uh, when I could have gone in other ways. So other interests which I was probing was business administration, but then my teachers, they encouraged me that like, why don't you do two more years? Like there is nothing for you to lose. If you want to shift, like you can always go in another direction so and mm. and yeah never looking back is there any topic that you remember that you know you were studying in physics and it just made you go like wow like i really want to pursue this optics it's optics. always optics <laughs> mm-hmm. so the the experiments with light interferometers using lasers for the first time right it, it's always optics which uh interviewed me so was it just like the natural, the like the naturality of it? Like, oh, it's everywhere. So nice to have it deduced. Or what was it about optics? Was there anything in specific? Or was it just like the field itself that you were, that just intrigued you in general? Uh, if you just think about it, it, it looks so simple, right? Like, so light travels in straight line, right? Like, doesn't interact with, uh, um, with another beam, which is going unless you make special conditions but then there's there's so much interesting you can do right not just with the light itself but how light interacts with matter so and and when you go to lower dimensions like so so for example uh, you cannot measure how two electrons interact with each other how electrons interact with say for example the lattice vibrations which are the phonons these time scales are beyond the or, or limits of the present day electronics but then you can use optical spectroscopies right to probe these at at uh, say sub picosecond to to few per second level time scales right so uh, light offers like so much uh, to study not just how properties of light itself but how light interacts with matter and and what we can achieve with it 
Right. I also find optics so interesting as well, because if you think about not that long ago where we didn't have all this like modern technology, it's something that was really mysterious and hard to actually study. And I, I always like to think about the times where um, scientists back in the day would try to make assumptions about light and you know, at the time, they couldn't really prove themselves right or wrong. They just had to kind of take a guess and then try to go from there. Yeah, optics was very different, I guess, right, in the uh, in the older ages. Even, I mean, before someone like Einstein with special relativity and all, I'm assuming the world of optics or ev or anything really would be would be quite, quite different. So, um, so, so here we are, you have stayed on these extra two years and you've now got into or kind of like physics a little bit more so was this like in your undergrad that you stayed on and then you just continued on to like a phd after or or how did how did that process work back then right so so i, I went on to do my master's in uh, central university hyderabad uh, which was kind of um mecca for optics at, at the time with uh, really really good teachers who are uh, in in the top uh, in in the world in in quantum optics for example right so for example uh, professor girish agarwal and right so they're they're good names good motivating teachers like so uh, i went on to do uh, my master's at uh, university of hyderabad also called central university of hyderabad right and then i uh, moved to tafr to work on uh, spectroscopy optical spectroscopy especially these uh, ultra-fast dynamics, like, so how carriers interact in semiconductors. Right. Oh, and, that's, that's, yeah. that's very cool. Yeah, sorry, sorry, continue. So, yeah, that, that was the journey. Yes. That was a journey. So, again, we see itself that optics has clearly evolved so much in, like, the last, again, since special relativity. I'm just going to keep that as, like, a pivot point. Since yeah. then, I'm assuming, like, it has evolved quite a lot. And uh, you've now researched at the TIFR, which to our listeners, the Tata Institute for Fundamental Research in Mumbai, yeah. India. And now you are also at the National Physical Laboratory in New Delhi. And you've also, yeah. I'm assuming, been working at these both spots for some amount of time, considerable amount of time, taking that you went to TIFR right after you graduated. Yeah. So I guess my question is, if optics change so much from special relativity, how much did it change since when you've been in it? How have you advanced with the technology or how has the technology advanced with you? Right. So, so now we more look at, uh, I mean, um, the, the classical optics is still interesting, right? So what we're talking about the old times, like, so uh, the lens maker equations that, I mean, th these are all fundamentals, which we need to uh, if you want to develop a good instrument, optical instrument, of course, I need to have strong um, basics in my classical optics, right? If I want to look at uh, uh, applications of optics where the photonics area has evolved, right? So it, it's completely application of these, uh, uh, the basics has, has come out considerably well, like the, the fiber optics and uh, uh, like we're also talking about single photon communication and all these things, right? So it, it has evolved quite a bit, moving from say millions, sending millions of photons over fiber or uh, free space communication to we're talking about sending single photons, detecting single photons or generating single photons, right? How, how to generate them and how, how they interact with the uh, matter, right? So it's, 
it's considerable uh, progress which has uh, happened over the last like you know um, 70 80 years at least because it, it's also linked to semiconductor development and now we are trying to look at people talk about if we can replace electrons with photons mm. so but right. but but we are we're still uh, off uh, but we are, we are inching closer right is that the art of photonics is that is that the whole research of photonics like can we make photons electrons yeah i mean i mean that's uh, can oh. can we replace for example electronic circuits with photonic circuits right so the photons already replace electrons as far as communication is concerned right can we can we go to computing as well right when we talk about information processing we have communication and computing both are there in communication the photons are already uh, replace electrons uh, uh, in almost all the places right now coming to communicating uh, computing right can we replace like that that's a long way off because uh, having photonic integrated chips uh, cost cost effective as well as uh, high computing uh, performing uh, chips is, is something which is still a challenge wow i mean millions of photons in a fiber to one itself i think i i believe a couple decades ago sending one photon or measuring one photon was considered impossible, was it not? Right. Yeah. The detectors, again, if you look at them, like, so the detectors are uh, known in semiconductors. For, for example, the, the good old uh, avalanche photodiode, right? We, we know the avalanche process, avalanche breakdown process in semiconductors, right? So you just use the same technology to detect uh, single photons. For example, you Sorry, bias your maybe maybe yeah, briefly I'm just, explain uh, that process. Yeah, yeah, I'm I just no trying idea. to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so if, if you have it, if you have a p-n junction, right, of semiconductors, a p-doped and an n-doped, and you form a junction, and uh, if you use in the forward bias where uh, p is connected to the positive of the battery and uh, the n is to the negative, you have the forward bias and you have the diode characteristics, right? So, uh, but you can also do the reverse bias where you change the polarities. Right. In that, if you keep on increasing your bias voltage at some point, like you see what is known as the breakdown. Right. So it's it's like you have so many uh, the, the kinetic energy of the electrons which are uh, there. Like so, you are pushing them so so fast that like they go and knock off other electrons which are around. Right. So that cause, causes an avalanche. Right. So it, it it's the same same process which is used for uh, single photon detection. So for example, your bias is just um, before the breakdown voltage, where this avalanche process starts, and then a, a photon falling on on the uh, on, on your diode, right, which is reverse biased, so that triggers the avalanche. Right, so you can you can get a when one single photon is absorbed, like so you get a a, a, a output pulse, right, which you can shape and detect. Right? Hmm. So how do you know if it's exactly one photon that you're detecting and not just like two photons hitting it at a very similar time? Right. So the uh, the, the good old Hanbury-Brownfish experiment, which is known in astronomy as well, like you, the, the idea is that like if you, uh, if you put a 50-50 beam splitter, so 50% of the light is getting reflected and 50% is getting transmitted. If you have a single photon, right, so if, if you have many photons, so half will go into one detector, which is in the reflection um, uh, reflection uh, path, and the other half will be detected in the transmission path by the detectors. 
But if you have a single photon, it'll either go into the reflection or into the transmission, but not to the, both the detectors. So what we do is, uh, the standard technique is to measure the so-called uh, second order correlation function, right? which is finding the probability of uh, finding the photon in both the detectors at any given time. Right? So when the path lengths of the reflected and the transmitted are equal, right? So that's a t equal to zero, right? So the photon can only go either in the reflection or in the transmission. But if you have uh, a time which is not equal to zero, which means there can be a stray photon coming from behind or uh, after the photon which we want to measure. So that can uh, trigger both the detectors, both the reflection and the transmission detectors. So you'll have a non-zero probability of finding a detector in both the detectors at t not equal to zero. But at t equal to zero, you'll have only one single uh, detector triggering. So the probability of finding photon in both the detectors will go to zero. Hmm. Okay. 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 Hmm. That's making sense. But continuing on with your, I mean, with these photons itself, I'm just trying to relate the art of photonics that, again, I know nothing of to detecting these photons. So I, what I guess my question can be is where does the detection of the photon or what does the detection of the photon tell you about the interaction with these particles? Cause I'm assuming what you're doing again, completely correct me if I'm completely wrong, but uh, I'm assuming you're like sending out a stream or maybe a singular photon interacting with some electronics and then it's being detected. So I guess my question is what is that detection telling you? Uh, or did so, I just get that completely wrong? Is that is that not what you're doing? What is that photon really doing in the first place? So so uh, the the technique which I said uh, is for saying whether we have one photon or uh, more than one photon, mm -hmm. right? But this photon can be used eventually for uh, say for example uh, for quantum like single photon level interactions, right? So when we want to compete with electronics, like when, when we say like photonics may one day replace electronics, like it, it's a, it's a far-fetched statement, but uh, at, at the present, because uh, the cost of chips, uh, electronic chips is much cheaper compared to, because we are packing more number of uh, transistors into the chip, right? And uh, also the power consumption is much, much uh, lower. So now we want to have processes which will work at few photon level, right? So uh, that, that's one application where like we want to use low power consuming photonic uh, circuits, right? So that, that's one, uh, one uh, area like where these photons can be used. And, and of course, like for communication point of view, a single photon is always better than many photons because uh, if somebody steals that single photon, we know when I'm sending information to you, if somebody steals the photon which I have sent you, automatically we'll know that like, okay, somebody is stealing the data. Okay. Mm -hmm. so, so the security uh, increases if we use uh, single photon uh, communication. And so are the complications in developing photonics, do those arise when considering the quantum effects that come into play? Uh, I mean, uh, you're asking about uh, how complex it is. Yeah, like, like, 
the 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 difficulty in in developing pho photonics is uh in considering the quantum effects that kind of play with the system right uh, so the whole game of uh, this argument about can we have an alternate for uh, alternative for electronics is because we are packing more and more transistors and eventually when we go to uh, single atom level or uh, so we're talking about quantum effects, right? Where these uh, devices will be interacting with each other, right? Uh, in, in, in terms of photonics, pure photonics, the problem is uh, if you talk about a photonic device, right? Uh, why can't we see uh, an, an atom with a, uh, in, in a microscope, in an optical microscope? Mm -hmm. in, it's because it's, the, it's below the diffraction limit, right? Like, so, we see something uh, when we get the reflected light, right? Or uh, at, at the at the limit of the resolution, uh, it, it's the distortion in the wavefront or distortion in the optical beam, which will tell us like, okay, there is something, some obstacle, some particle uh, in, in the path of the optical beam, right? So uh, the diffraction limit says that uh, the particle size should be, uh, greater than uh, or equal to lambda by two. So if you're talking about blue light, like so 400 nanometers, so the particle sizes should be at least 200 nanometers or so. The sizes are much bigger, right? Compared to electronics where we're talking about seven nanometers as the smallest feature which you have in the, in, in the electronic circuits is in, in the chips. So here we are talking about limit limitation, fundamental limitations coming from the diffraction limit, right? which puts it at lambda by two. These are much, much bigger compared to the electronic uh, uh, circuits which are possible. So how do we uh, overcome this? So, so one area people are looking at is, is these uh, metamaterials, right? So you can have, uh, initially people are thinking about using what are known as the plasmons, which are surface waves. So if, when you have a metal, you have large number of free electrons on the surface, right? Uh, under certain conditions, so, you can uh, excite a charge density wave. So you have more number of electrons at one place and less number of electrons at the other place. And this charge density wave propagates along the interface of a metal and a insulator, right? So the metal dielectric interface. So because uh, this is uh, this charge density wave, the plasmon mode is a, is a surface mode, which means that uh, close to the surface within say 10 nanometer of the surface, you have this confinement of the um, of the field going on. So from optical domain, where you are talking about lambda by two features, now you are confining that electromagnetic field to the surfaces of, of the order of like tens of nanometers. Okay. So, so you are uh, bringing down the, the field to much smaller dimensions, which are comparable to the electronics. Okay. Mm. So these are challenges. So, so now how do I manipulate the photons? So we talk about these so-called metamaterials, which are designed materials with the sub-wavelength featured uh, uh, structures or like like atoms um, forming a, a, a lattice. So here the, here the entire material is made of some unit cells which are much smaller than the wavelength. These are sub-wavelength featured so that one wavelength of light will not see the, see the material as, uh, or, or one layer as a one layer, right? Because it's not feeling the one one wavelength which which you see right it, uh, it is not seeing the uh, each layer separately it just sees the overall uh, structure as as a unit right so you'll have what is known as an affective medium 
right? As far as the light is concerned, the refractive index is not concerning to any one particular material, but it's it's a new material which you are designing. So you're going towards metamaterials, in, right? So this is you can design as per your wish, right? So you want some particular uh, functionality, you can design this metamaterial for that particular functionality. So, so yeah. going towards like, yes, I mean, uh, these are the um, paths people are taking so that like you, you beat the diffraction limit and, and, uh, and also have, say, for example, I want to put a single nanoparticle inside them, right? A single nanoparticle is like a, like an atom, right? Uh, compared to an atom which is in, in, in vacuum, right, it doesn't interact with any, any other uh, surroundings. So you have very precise uh, uh, energy levels for these atoms. Right? Now you have a nanoparticle. So the nanoparticle is a solid state equivalent of an atom. Right? You also have, because of the small nature where the size of the particle is uh, comparable to or smaller than the de Broglie wavelength, so the wave function of the electron inside this uh, uh, particle, so the electron energy levels are quantized. So you have discrete energy levels which are forming when you have a nanoparticle. Right? When you put this inside these metamaterials, you can have like an atom inside a cavity kind of structure. Right? Uh, that actually is quite fascinating because I was thinking about how you were trying to describe or, or describing metamaterials and how like the photonics and how our understanding of all our limits basically kind of is is the only thing that's really stopping us from really moving forward, right? So all these fundamental limits are really the thing. So I don't know if this, th th this might be a really, really basic question at this point, especially, but I do want to ask um, very simply, what's the sheer advantage of photonics? Because it seems like you're doing so much more work. Now, obviously, that will pay off, I'm assuming, in the long run. But I guess the question is, apart from like the obvious, okay, it's like 50,000 times faster. The, I guess the question is, like, what is the actual advantage of photoelectronics? Like, how does that play an advantage in that part? Right. Uh, as I said, one is, uh, what if we reach some limits in electronics? From yeah, I guess that's the theoretical... For sure. Right? Yes. Uh, then the second question, obviously, is uh, the speed. Right. And and uh, bringing two electrons close together and traveling, or <clears throat> or if you have two wires, uh, when you bring them close together, there is interference and all that. That doesn't happen uh, if you have two photons. Uh, uh, I mean, two photonic channels, for example. So, so these these are I mean uh, advantages. That makes sense. How are these? How are these metamaterials then constructed? Are they constructed in, like, using? I'm assuming like using very high precision lasers and whatnot. I'm assuming like again, just 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 explain it rather than me trying to guess. Okay. How exactly? Uh, I mean, uh, so uh, metamaterials, as I said, they do not exist in nature. <clears throat> so you, you think of. Um, some some functionality which you want. For example, if if I want to have a, a I want to improve uh, solar cells, right? So what do we need is uh, I need to absorb as much light as possible in in the in in my solar cell, right? So for this I need to have a highly absorbing material, right? I, I start with that. Right? 
So for that, I need to confine the field to the active layer as much as possible. So I need to design so that like it, it, it acts almost like a cavity where like one, one of the layers you have uh, strong absorption, right? And so for this, you start off with uh, um, either um, metal dielectrics, a, a combination of metal and insulating layers or uh, metals are lossy. So now people are looking at uh, using all dielectrics, all insulating layers, so alternating layers. So you design it and then depending on the structure. So there are different ways. The simplest is making alternating layers of these materials. Okay. So there you use deposition techniques like uh, sputtering or uh, um, very high precision if you need, like so you can go to molecular beam epitaxy. Okay. <clears throat> Uh, if you want to pattern, so for example, you have a material and then you want to make some patterns, like, like for example, discs on top, right? So there you use some lithographic techniques. Yes, I mean, as you said, like, so laser machining is one thing, uh, but uh, it, it's electron beam lithography is, is mostly preferred uh, because it has a focus and beam is also used, right? So it, it depends on the structure, like whether you want holes, whether you want pillars on top of your structure so that there are uh, you choose your uh, technique depending on uh, availability as well as ease uh, it, it gives in making these structures so has it been done uh, already um the act of actually confining a single photon and being to being able to control and direct it right uh, yes, I mean, uh, yes and no, because uh, uh, what is the current challenge with uh, single photons now is uh, uh, on demand, right? So it, it's like a switch, right? You, you turn the switch on and then uh, a single photon comes out, right? Mm -hmm. So that's on demand, uh, single photon generation is still a challenge. It's not mm -hmm. uh, done, right? But uh, your structures where you can confine um, a single photon in a structure, right? and, and that has been uh, achieved. Hmm. So if the on-demand is not still completed, what exactly are we completed, or what exactly have we completed when it comes to single photon detections? Is it, so, like, so how, then, how have we deduced that if the... Right. Uh, so... Uh, as I say, like, so uh, we have these metamaterial structures in which we have uh, a, a single nanoparticle inside them. And then because these have discrete energy levels, so when we excite an electron from ground state to the excited state, so it, the electron recombines with the hole in the uh, valence band and then emits a photon out. Because it's one, one photon absorbed will excite one electron up, so when re-emits, you get one photon out. That's the ideal scenario, right? So you do get these single photons out and then we can characterize them, right? And, and the simplest way of doing is you take room light. It, it'll have billions of photons in, in, in what we're seeing, right? So uh, you can put filters, right? Just uh, um, some color uh, insensitive filters and then you can reduce the intensity to such a level that uh, you can go down to a, a single photon. Mm. Right. So, but but then it, it won't be that a, a photon is coming all the time. One photon is coming out of these filters all the time. Like so, for example, if you are measuring for say 
100 seconds, you will have one photon, right? So it, these are, uh, these are uh, uh, as I said, like, so these are not on demand, wherever, whenever you want, you're, you're getting it, but then you do have uh, single photons. So why haven't we been able to do on demand? Because as you just explained it, just exciting this meta material doesn't sound hard to me. <laughs> like, uh, is there is there something that I'm not understanding about the meta material? Like, why is it hard to excite this electron? Right. So uh, again, it, it goes back to the light matter interaction. So so how when you when you're exciting with with optics, for example, you're you're shining a light, so the light is absorbed, so the light wavelength is uh, such that the, the photon energy is above the band gap, so that an electron from the valence band is excited to the conduction band. Right. But how can we make sure that only one photon, because there, there are many, many electrons in the, in the semiconductor system, right? So how do we make sure that only single photon is getting absorbed and, and precisely only one photon? And that also is triggering this electron hole recombination to re-emit the photon, right? These, these are all probabilistic, right? Like, so there is, say, 20% absorption. There is 30% absorption inside the semiconductor. By making this metamaterial structure, we are making the uh, making the photonic density of states in such a way that like, the probability of absorption of a single photon is increasing, or or outcoupling of a single photon is uh, increasing. Right, but still, uh, it, it's a the, the total uh, quantum efficiency, as we say, like so of, of how uh, this photon is getting absorbed. And uh, what is the probability of that electron which is excited? It's not interacting with the uh, phonons and getting into a, a uh, I mean, losing its energy without recombination, right? That's also possible. There are defects. There are other kinds of uh, processes which will uh, make sure that the electron not necessarily recombine with the hole and emit a photon. Right? Eventually, I, I guess, like so, uh, we need to combine electronic and photonic ideas where we have an electronic electrical pulse which will uh, uh, do the trigger and then uh, exits an electron and then the electron hole recombination happens and then the photon is uh, emitted out. Mm. But if we're <clears throat> trying to combine electronics and photonics together, wouldn't the entire like system be limited by the uh, I guess the capacities of the electronics, and so we wouldn't be really reaping the benefits of purely photonics, uh, purely photonic systems. But, uh, I mean, uh, that's where is the challenge is. Like, so how do we? Uh, I mean, for photonics, we need the layers to be very thin, right? So can we have good conduction of electrons? Like, so then would electrons? Uh, um, nicely tunnel through or pass through these layers or, or mm -hmm. propagate within these layers, right? So you, you have doped uh, semiconductors, for example, for the electronic structures, right? So you have semiconductors which are used, right? Now, uh, if you're, uh, the limitation is uh, choosing these thicknesses, choosing the materials suitable for both electronics as well as the photonics, right? So when we talk about a metamaterial, very precise, uh, thicknesses or the dimensions are needed. So would that be suitable for the electronics? Right. So that, right. that would be a yeah, challenge. Is there any use currently or not use, but what or have you been using? Is it, 
how I should have said it, these uh, this preliminary technology as of yet, because as you said, we still haven't been able to go through the computational aspect of it, right? Like it can't, or, or did I, uh, yeah, so you can't exact, so there's one part of the major part of the electronics that unfortunately we're still unable to do. But I guess my question is, have you been able to do the other parts well with photonics and have like have been uh, in use pretty well? Or what do you see the differences between that and electronics? Right. Uh, so one, one interesting part is that uh, you, you set your target to reach the sky, right? We'll, we'll not be able to jump so high to reach the sky, but then in the, in the process, like, so we will be learning, we'll be generating know-how, knowledge, right? Which will help us do other things, right? So, so that's the whole uh, point of doing the blue sky research or the basic R&D. Okay. I guess that makes sense. How far are we from a, uh, a photonic computer, let's say? So a computer run on photonics. Yeah, I, I recently read uh, about a week or so ago. Um, I, I think it, it's a Canadian uh, uh, company which uh, uh, actually integrated a full photonic integrated uh, chip into into the mainframe computer. Oh wow! Uh, right. Oh wow! So I do not so remember the there. details. <laughs> then, yeah, we're we're inching closer. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's actually very, very cool. So what are, so I guess, okay. So now that we actually have direct, like a, a literal computer to test this on, um, have there been, I'm assuming there has definitely been like tests like this versus supercomputers or whatnot. So I guess the question is, well, how much better is it? Cause I guess like, have you, have you read up any, cause I don't want to ask you if you haven't like read no, up no, any more. About not, not yet. Okay. Yeah, it, it's okay. not a full, fully. It's very um, new. It's very new. Thing. So it's just one, one, one chip, which is used in it. Right. So, okay. but for, for a full optical or the photon uh, based computer to come an optical computer to come is a long way off. Long way off. Yeah. Okay. And the biggest challenge again for that is simply the construction of the materials and the scarcity packing, of it. Is that, right. is that it? Packing, packing, uh, packing enough number of components to, to do the logic operations. And, and are, we, are we going to use the same? I mean, if you want to integrate with the, the current electronic uh, computers, right? So we need to use a similar kind of architecture. But if it is a fully photonic computer like are we going to use the same architecture same logic operations or or is it going to be different mm. right so there is uh, i mean this possibility scope for changing the architecture itself so currently we have i think this actually oh this is actually a really good question i just thought of i think this is actually really interesting to me right now currently we have electronics that are working decently well to our standards right and we have some crazy supercomputers. Our next goal in the process of processing and computational is quantum computers, right? Yeah. So my, I guess my question is, I mean, you are studying photonics, so I guess that's not a very good question to you, but um, do you think photonics would outweigh quantum computing? And if not, Again, this is not a very good question for you, but 
shouldn't we be directing our resources to something that is even better if we're anyways spending the equal amount of time on it? Like if we're trying to figure out quantum computing and we're trying to figure out photonics, but quantum computing is much better, or let's say photonics is much better, then what's the point of doing the other in the first place? Right. So as I said, uh, just to put in, in very simple uh, very simplified way is a quantum computer is is a parallel computing machine right and and uh, the the computers which we have uh, they do serial processing right so we do parallel uh, processing by coding uh, using different codes right different coding technologies we can still do it right so uh, it, it's not uh, the present day computers or the quantum computers, I would see them as different technologies, like which which can do uh, completely different uh, ultimate goals, right? Like so, what, what you can do with a quantum computer is uh, far far um, more challenging and far more uh, um, far more uh, challenging than than a normal computer which is existing now. Right. So to build a quantum computer, yes, I mean, so right now people are using these superconducting qubits because the technology has matured. Right. It, it all began with uh, atoms in cavities, right? So the NMR has been used with uh, very specific molecules having uh, 5, 10, uh, or 12 qubits in, in each resonance is one, one single uh, qubit operation, right? Qubit. So uh, there is also photonic qubits optical qubits, which are uh, being pursued. Okay. So you can have the polarization state of uh, photons as, as, uh, uh, as, as, a, um, as a qubit, for example, right? uh, as, as a freedom of uh, uh, using it. Like, so uh, you have optics-based uh, uh, quantum computing architectures also people are working on, but it's not as matured as the superconducting ones. Right. So it's not the, the traditional photonic uh, computer or a quantum computer, but yes, I mean, people are also looking at using photons for uh, uh, building a quantum computer. The technology is not matured yet, but yes, I mean, that's one area people are looking at. So that would be the goal, a photonic quantum the, computer. Right, yes. Wow, okay. Okay. So uh, I'm interested to know um, what you actually... Uh, did for your thesis in writing your your PhD. Okay, uh, so I, I looked at uh, in, in semiconductor, right? We have electrons and holes, the so valence band, conduction band, right? So I've been uh, using little bit of uh, that uh, in in my earlier answers. Okay. So so when we have uh, an electron which is excited to the conduction band, right? So it's in certain energy level, right? So now this electron is uh, has, to, has to lose its energy and come back to the bandwidth, right? So how does this, this process happen? Right? So what are the pathways for it to uh, lose its energy and momentum? Right? So the electron interacts with the other electrons. Electron interacts with the holes in the valence band. Electron interacts with the um, with phonons, the lattice vibrations, right? But what happens if we reduce the dimensions instead of having bulk in which uh, you have 
three degrees of freedom, right? Ex, Ey, Ez, the x, y, z components of uh, energy as well as the momentum components, kx, ky, kz, right? So they're all, uh, I mean, uh, continuously variable, minus infinity to plus infinity. They can, you, you can always uh, get some scattering component. An electron can interact with another electron uh, with the minimal restriction on the, as far as the energy and momentum conservation takes place, it can scatter with them, right? Interact with it. But when you bring these electron, bring these electrons and holes to dimensions close to the uh, Bohr radius, that one wavelength of uh, electron or the particle, right? So then uh, you start seeing this like potential well problem in uh, uh, quantum mechanics, right? So uh, it, it's like we are making a uh, making a potential well by having high band gap and low band gap uh, material, and then another. So basically, a low band gap material is sandwiched between two high band gap materials, right? That that forms a a semiconductor based potential well, right? It's called a quantum well. So when you bring uh, when you have this narrow uh, say sub 100 nanometer uh, uh, thick semiconductor layer and the electron is uh, inside that layer. How does interaction of that electron uh, with other electrons holes and the, and the lattice, uh, I mean, are uh, compared to, for example, when the electron is free to move in all three dimensions, right? In a potential well, it can move in two dimensions. It's confined in one of the uh, directions. Right. Or you can have a nanowire in which the electron can only move in uh, freely in one direction, but in the other two directions, it's confined, quantum confined. Mm. Or a particle in a box, a, a quantum dot or a nanoparticle. How these electron, electron are, uh, right? When, when you're bringing, in a, uh, bringing them to lower dimensions, what happens is the electrons and holes uh, are no longer independent particles, but because these are confined to dimensions which are smaller than uh, the uh, de Broglie wavelength, so the electron and hole are spatially close together. Right? So they, they form a hydrogen atom-like uh, uh, particle, which is uh, charge neutral, and these are called the excitons. Right? So uh, my thesis was about how these excitons are formed, how these excitons lose their energy and momentum, how they interact with other excitons, how they interact with other electrons and holes and lattice uh, vibrations of phonons. Right? So that was... Uh, so what were some like key um, results that you found in, in studying this? Yeah, I mean, it's basically uh, what we showed is uh, there is a dimensional dependence uh, for these things. So um, uh, we showed by comparing quantum wells or potential wells of different uh, uh, well widths and also with the uh, uh, quantum wires, right? So how these uh, exciton dynamics are changed, right? So we measured the lifetimes, we measured the interaction strengths, the scattering strengths, and then showed that, yes, as the dimensions are changed, so your uh, scattering uh, strengths vary. Right? That's what we showed in our work. Hmm. Very interesting. And does this connect in any way to what you're doing now? Uh, so eventually, like, so what, what I do uh, is uh, use the semiconductors. I still use semiconductors to design these metamaterials. And that's where I mentioned that uh, the holy grail for me is to uh, couple the ideas of electronics and photonics now, right? Uh, metamaterials and see if we can design 
metamaterials where we can electrically or magnetically trigger them hmm. so do do excitons uh interact with photons in a special way uh, i mean they they do absorb so that the if the energy is uh, right like so and and the momentum so it, it just energy momentum needs to be conserved and uh, you can oh. excite you can couple light uh, or excite excitons so just light. like a hydrogen atom yes yes okay very interesting oh, oh that is very interesting actually so the excitons basically can model oh wow that's actually pretty interesting because it can be absorbed by all these projects by, by all these things so I was just thinking, because uh, there was an abundant use of semiconductors in all of these experiments. And officially, I don't think we've ever really gone into a conversation about them. Because I don't think either of us really know too much about them in the first place to really go into a conversation about them. So, I mean, obviously, we're talking now in specific to you, and we've already kind of discussed how it can, you know, help and what exactly it does in these experiments. So, when you set these conductors up, like, is there is there a, like, what's the pro, because I'm actually very interested in, like, practical physics, experimental physics. So, I'm just, like, thinking fundamentally, if I were to set something like this up, would I just be taking these conductors and you know, putting them together, physically putting them together with like research technicians, like what's the process of you actually conducting one of these experiments, you know, like with these semiconductors, like what is the use of these semiconductors in these experiments? And like, how do you actually manipulate them? Right. So, so uh, what we do in the lab, uh, so we take these uh, structures, semiconductor structures, and uh, we have uh, uh, some fancy lasers, which uh, generate, uh, say, 25 femtosecond um, pulse, pulses, right? So the pulse width is about 25 femtosecond. So we, we shine light, uh, the laser light on the sample, and then uh, uh, do uh, spectroscopies, which vary from uh, the simple uh, measure, like so measure the photoluminescence. Right, so the light is exciting uh, electron up in the uh, connection band, so that uh, forms a exciton over a short time scale uh, into an exciton by binding with the hole nearby, and then uh, how it interacts with the uh, other uh, excitons, and then depending on that, like it loses its. Uh, so initially, there, there is a polarization of the incident light. So. So all the excitons or all the electrons are aligned uh, with respect to the polarization of the incident light. So the electric field orientation, so it's the electron uh, spins are all oriented. Now, over time, like so these electrons are interacting with other electrons and then they lose their coherence or, or they, they become randomly oriented. Right? So this, uh, this is the coherence time. Right? So for any quantum application, right? so you need, uh, for example, uh, and any measurement which we do is a probabilistic measurement in, uh, in in quantum computing, for example, right? So that means like we're making many, many measurements and measuring the probability of finding in some particular state of, of the electron, right? So now uh, for this to happen, for these many measurements to happen, the coherence time has to be very long, right? So, so we, we look at um, processes or, or materials which have long coherence times, how, how we can 
look at the coherences and, and uh, 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 what materials have higher coherence and, and things like that. So, so we, we study different materials and look at uh, their uh, lifetimes. And these are all naturally occurring materials? Yes, most of them right. are, yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so uh, actually, uh, these are not uh, okay. I should be uh, careful. Like, so, so not not all. So, most of these the semiconductors nowadays, which we work on, the silicon, germanium, uh, these are the group four elements are naturally existing. But now the semiconductors are mostly by mixing group three and group five uh, uh, from the periodic table. Right. We have gallium arsenide, indium gallium arsenide, aluminium gallium arsenide, or you can make uh, aluminium gallium arsenide, antimonide. Or you can mix uh, a group two and group six elements, right? Like cadmium selenide, cadmium sulfide selenide. Okay. So these are all, uh, these do not exist in uh, nature, but uh, by mixing these, these uh, compounds, semiconductors are made. So that's how we can control the band gaps and uh, get alternating layers. That's interesting. I was just wondering is there any use for superconductors in your field? Uh, as as detectors, so so now I move to uh, National Physical Laboratory. So here uh, uh, in in TFR, I was more looking at uh, how to have these single uh, semiconductor nanoparticles, the quantum dots inside these metamaterials, and get directional single photon emitters. So that's what I'm working on, and uh, we have some progress on that. Right. So here uh, at NPL, like so, what I'm uh, looking at is uh, single photon detection. So one is, of course, the avalanche photodiodes. The, the other one uh, is uh, the superconducting nanowire-based uh, single photon detectors. Right. So th that's something which we are looking at. And and yes, I mean uh, the superconducting. Uh, for me, uh, the superconducting uh, material superconductors are useful as uh, detectors for single photon. Mm -hmm. So how do those work? So uh, you have these uh, uh, thin. Uh, wires of uh, uh, superconducting nanowires, for example, the widths are of the order of like say hundreds of nanometer. Right. So when photon falls, we, either the photon can get absorbed or uh, the photon can just uh, transfer its heat. Right. So just heat locally, heat the superconductor out of its superconducting state. So it becomes a normal state. Right. So then once that happens, you have a voltage developing. Uh, in, in, in that uh, region, right? The current uh, is normal current which passes through. Right? So that comes out as a voltage pulse which, which you can uh, detect. Right? Mm. So compared to avalanche photodiodes where these, uh, they work uh, only uh, in certain wavelength ranges. So the superconducting nanowires, they, they work over a very broad band from say uh, near infrared to you can, you can detect like complete spectrum of uh, uh, oh wow! Big radiation. So a lot more universal in that sense. Right. 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 How do you handle the problem of temperature with these superconductors? Because when a photon or streams of photons and like reaches a temperature differential, it refracts. So I guess my question is, how do you have something, or is it like your whole setup super chilled, or? How does that work? Like, how do, how are your wires superconductors without you know the whole setting, uh, the the whole setup just being really really cold? Like, uh, we use a commercial cryostats now, right? So these are uh, uh, liquid helium based ones, right? You can go down to um, 
right easily to just with pumping you can you can go down to one one to two kelvin temperatures right so these samples are pretty small so uh, it, it's easy not not too much of liquid helium is needed over days you can run it for uh, tens of liters of liquid helium right so okay so it doesn't really affect it doesn't really affect the the process yeah, the, bar, right. the whole thing is just changed right Okay. 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 That makes sense. And in your, in your, uh, experience at the NPL, how did, how did that change happen? Because TIFR again, for, for listeners, not from India is in Mumbai and NPL is currently in New Delhi, right? So mm -hmm. are you still a researcher at TIFR or did you officially move to the NPL? Yeah, uh, I'm on deputation, so my lab is working. So TFR is uh, uh, kind enough to let me uh, retain oh, okay. my lab there. So my students nice. and uh, postdocs they are working in TFR, so the lab is still functional. And in uh, NPL, I'm as uh, uh, got the offer as the director here. Like so, it's a uh, it's a National Metrology Institute. So I'm also learning about the metrology. Right. So that's a little uh, interesting. Yeah. You were talking about your experience and also teaching now. So were you always, was that always a goal for you? Or were you just like, oh, I guess now I'm at this national lab. I, I guess I should start teaching. Or how, or how did that come up? Teaching is always there. Uh, finding time now is a bit challenging, but uh, I, I'll be starting my teaching next week uh, for this semester. Right. So because, teaching yeah, teaching is always interesting because uh, it, it doesn't matter how much we know, how much we read, but uh, when we're presenting it to students, like so there are always questions which pop out, right? And then mm -hmm. you try to answer them and you say, it gives a different perspective to the whole uh, whole of uh, my understanding, right? Mm -hmm. So, okay, okay, I can also explain this way. Oh, okay, this is different outlook, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... I see, I, I see over here that there are like nearly five to six, the seven publications that you have every year that you've been releasing. And now I'm hearing you're also teaching. So, I mean, apart from the fact that teaching is probably, as you very well said, definitely takes up a lot of your time. How do you get out five publications in a year? Like, isn't one publication like a lot of work? Again, not really knowing anything about publications if you could care to explain, but what's, what's the process of getting so many out in, in, in a year? Uh, I mean, I, I should thank my uh, students, right? They're, they're the ones who do most yeah. of the dirty work now <laughs> and, uh, uh, and my collaborators, right? One thing I learned is uh, uh, yes, having good collaborations is important. And uh, once we collaborate for the sake of science, I, I shouldn't be worried about uh, where my name is in the publication, whether it's a beginning or end or in between, like as long as they don't care about it, right? I can always maintain good uh, relation and uh, healthy uh, atmosphere in the collaboration, right? So uh, that, that's what uh, I, I should thank my students and collaborators for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, so which uh, courses are you going to be teaching in this semester? So uh, uh, right now I'll, I'll be teaching on uh, metamaterials. So, so mostly about nanophotonics. Uh, so I'll be teaching about, uh, uh, I mean, in my course from whatever I learned uh, in the university, my teachers, as I said, uh, they, they always stressed on the importance of both theory and experiment. 
some students uh, always complain that like I make them do a lot in my course, but uh, I hope like once they uh, go to start their own research, they'll realize uh, like I did uh, my own experience right? that uh, my teachers made me a lot of numerics and uh, a lot of computational work as part of projects or uh, the exams and all that. Like So I, I make them do the whole lot. So I cover a bit of theory, uh, the numerical techniques, and as well as uh, experimental techniques to students. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, are you in the labs with the, a lot of these students as well? Because uh, you mentioned that yeah. these would be undergraduate students, right? Right. So, so, the, yeah, so uh, these, yeah. Yeah. Right. So, uh, because of this COVID time, uh, so I tried to uh, do it online while, while teaching the basic optics course, for example. Uh, I, I tried to set up these experiments of diffraction or interference and then show them in the lab right, uh, by using some cameras and yeah. so that, that's uh, it was appreciated rather than uh, just writing down uh, I, mm -hmm. I don't use any PowerPoint so I still do it work out all the math in the class but uh, when I whenever uh, when I combined the two of showing the lab actual experiments so people I mean the students really appreciated and uh, they say that that makes them understand her uh, much better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. wow. So when you're showing or conducting the lab for your students, are you allowed to have someone in the lab with you, uh, like helping you set up or do you have to do it on your own? So uh, it, it depends if the basic experiments, like I, I do it myself. So there's sometimes they're already, for example, each, each student will build his uh, or, or her own uh, experimental setup, right? If I have to show their setup, like, of course, I take their help and say that like, okay, it's built by the student and uh, he's or she is here. And uh, I'll also make them to explain a little bit by themselves. Okay, so it's a lot of use for there too. <laughs> I mean, for, for, for them too. And your graduate students and like uh, your your helpers, let me call it your, your dirty workers, where are they from? Are they, uh, you also mentioned that NPL supports a graduate program. So are they now from NPL or are they from your original lab or what's the, what's the deal with that right now? So my, my students in Mumbai are in, are in Mumbai. Yeah. And uh, in NPL, I have uh, new students who are uh, Delhi or, or nearby, like the NPL students are in Delhi. So the people that are involved with the lab, the dirty workers, are they, how, how much credit do they get? They get, they get something? all the credit, as I said, uh, clearly. Oh, they like, do. So they do, they do all the work, right? Like, so, uh, I mean, I, I, as if, as a PI, uh, it's my responsibility to make sure that they're trained and they can, uh, do things by themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And the, after that, it, it, it's it's their setup. It's it's their system. They have to own uh, their work, right? It's their. But thesis on the paper design. itself, on the paper itself, like your contributors right. and whatnot, your contributors would be listed. Right. Where would they like? Would they actually provide any input towards the paper? And if so, then maybe they would get on there. But or would they just like be actually like fitting up the work, setting up the experiment before you come in, or like right. did they actually input things as well? Like what were they like? Right. So so the universities have some minimum requirements. So in in TFR, for example, we uh, the, the student to graduate, so they need one 
publication, one in an international peer-reviewed journal. Oh, wow. Right? So, that sounds very useful. Right? So the, the work which they do, uh, the first paper, uh, I discuss the problem with them, with the student, and uh, make sure that they're trained to do that, right? And uh, I write the paper, right? And I discuss with them, it's their results. They give me the results. Like we cross-check and we do it, uh, the whole thing together. But I write the first draft and then help them. But the second paper onwards, they have to write their own draft and give it to me. Then I will um, make the changes, corrections, whatever suggestions, and then it's, it's mutually we work on. The students have to write their own papers at the end. Right? Mm. So from oh. completely from, from second paper onwards, there is no way I'm going to spoon feed them. Right? That's, that's interesting because writing these papers um, currently, even in my third year of physics, it's uh, we were told that in a lot of future and advanced physics labs, you like because we were asking each other, okay, why can't we collaborate? Because usually this course that I'm currently in is collaborative based, and this year it wasn't. And the professor had a very interesting idea, and I want to ask if that's the reason why you think they have to write the paper themselves, because I'm assuming when you collaborate with a lot of other scientists and and whatnot you are writing the paper together, right? But in this case, you're writing the whole paper by yourself, right? So that, that, that change, like having to write the whole thing by yourself, I'm assuming you think that that definitely provides a better understanding for whatever work you're doing, right? Absolutely. So then later on, so then later on when they've already written it, they've given it to you, you're like, okay, let's collaborate. Then the actual publication that goes out is that, is that collaborated? That is, right? Or is it right. just his? Right. So, so uh, in, in some works, uh, I do the theory or modeling for my collaborators. Okay. So they give me the experimental data and then they ask me if I can do some modeling for them. So I do that. For some, uh, I, I don't understand. I, I do not, I'm, uh, I'm not trained to explain some, some uh, data. Right. So then I collaborate with theoreticians who will do the modeling or theory for me. Right. So once we write the draft and then uh, uh, to understand, better understand, better express things, right. So collaborate different things. Sometimes I, I just design the structure. Sometimes I only uh, make the samples. So nanofabrication is done uh, in my lab. Right. So yes, I mean, it, it depends on which part we do. Right. So uh, sometimes I, yeah, uh, we write the draft, we send it out to potential collaborator and then say that like, look, this is what we think. Could you help us uh, in building a model or uh, correcting us? Mm -hmm. That's very useful. Yeah, um, so we've spoken up to now a lot about just a single field, but are there any other fields that you are interested in or have been interested in uh, while studying physics? Uh, yes, I mean, uh, yes and no. Uh, any, anything related to optics, yes. I mean, if, if there is any field where, uh, like, like I'm not a superconducting expert, but then to detect single photons, I don't mind uh, learning superconductivity. So I, I, it, it's, a, it's a continuous process, right? Like, so uh, it, it's not that like we, uh, it, it's near impossible to just do one thing all our uh, entire career, right? So, uh, 
uh, we, we do keep learning new things and uh, mm. uh, improve improve i mean to improve whatever we know uh, i think it, it's it's um, it's required to learn other areas as well yeah right, sure and have you ever been uh, like a fan of pure math or do you just see it as a tool to help you pursue your interest in physics so my as i said like so the, the in my masters uh, there is considerable stress put on uh, the theoretical part right and and when i joined for my uh, phd in tafr so uh, it's uh, my my this supervisor, uh, he's a uh, theoretician turned experimentalist. So he also stressed that uh, we have to do both. To be a good experimentalist, you need to be a theoretician as well. Right? At least it, it's a small, big, doesn't matter, but you need to do. So I've been always told this. So when I worked in Japan, so I could design the device and uh, develop the device parameters, for example, like so how, uh, work out the uh, math for uh, these device parameters for that particular device right? and then characterize and show the device uh, functionality. Mm. So it, it helps in giving the complete package, but uh, one can never be fully sufficient and we need to learn from our collaborators. All right. So are you now passing down this wisdom to your students to be both they rigorous all, in the theory and the experimental they, side? They, 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 they all have to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I actually really like the uh, the pressure put onto the collaborate. No, okay, not pressure is the wrong word, but uh, the forgetting the word, but like the importance, the importance mm-hmm. of collaboration, right? So can you tell us a little more about it? Because I think a lot of people throughout their high school experience, university experience, when they look at science, they think of, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to figure everything out by myself because that's what I have to do. And then most people end up hating it. So I guess the question, I mean, what I'm, what I'm asking is what, how does that affect um, you know, like how these students, okay. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think I said that very well. I don't think I said that very well. Um, okay. I forgot what I was going to say. I just completely mind. No, collaboration. collaboration. There it is. Thank you so much. I guess <laughs> the question was, uh, where does the collaborative aspects help your graduating students? Like, do you see a lot of these students, maybe not struggle, but have a little difficulty with a lot of the courses, but then you put them together and all of a sudden they're actually more interested in the course itself. So the question would be where, where do you see collaboration taking, taking it like taking science away from like your own individuality? Like, where does that come in? Uh, Okay. Uh, Interesting question. So it's, uh, uh, what I try to do is, uh, um, for, for example, if I, if I give you a problem and say that like you need to solve and then this is your assignment, okay? Right. There's so much you can do. Okay. But if I say that like, so I, I make it so that like not just a simple question and then I say, I say that like this is a question, right? And uh, you need to solve this. You need to show me by plotting and doing all the uh, numerical work and uh, plot it and show it to me. Uh, it will take a lot more time, right? So 
I don't give it to one student. I say that like, okay, three, three of you can form a group, right? So it, it becomes like uh, a, a group work, right? And I insist that uh, in, in these times like say, ethics and scientific ethics and all these things is very important, right? So uh, to uh, put that in practice, I make sure that they, they specify exactly like what contribution each of them uh, is in that uh, solution which they are giving to me. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I ask them openly, like if there is any weightage they want uh, to be given. Okay. Uh, somebody did more work, somebody did lesser work. Okay, it's possible, but if they want to give some weightage, uh, so I ask them directly and then they take. So this is kind of like for, for students uh, in, in the class, like so this uh, will help in two ways. One is uh, uh, to, make them interact with others to learn. Um, I mean, the, the learning can be a lot more faster and uh, it, it need not be done. Every bit need not be done by each one of them. Right? It tells that like, so by collaborating, we can learn a lot more, do a lot more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And your collaborators, are they, do you work with them like physically? Do you, I mean, I guess COVID times, just forget COVID. I mean, before COVID, every every question is pre-COVID. So pre-COVID, um, when you were you know collaborating with other scientists and whatnot, were they from all over the world? Were they from all over India, or were you physically working with them on the projects? Uh, it, 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 uh, both ways. So the international collaborators, we send the share the data over email, and then uh, we discuss over one of these uh, chats, and then try to do it. And there are also uh, Indian collaborators, they come and visit me or I, I go visit them. Right? We spend a couple of weeks um, depending on the problem. Like, okay. So both in formulating the problem as well as uh, solving, uh, I mean, building some model or something like that. Right? Yes, I mean, both, both are possible. Uh, physical, um, physical proximity is not, is not a necessity for uh, the collaborations. Okay, that's useful. So when it's not a necessity and when you are not physically in contact, how does the, like, is the process even, like, how how different is it? Because I would think working with someone, I can be like, oh, now it's this, now it's this. I can tell them what's happening at every point of the experiment. You know, we can literally, quote, unquote, collaborate on the experiment. But in the in the in the situation where that's not the case, when the physical distance is an is is a factor, how does that work? Is it like oh, I have to do this now, I have to wait twelve hours for this guy to respond? Like, like is it things like that? Like, what are the common problems that you would see sometimes in 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 these collaborative projects? See, uh, with the student, the first thing happens that uh, we we discuss, we exchange the data. Like when we are physically together, right? mm -hmm. so. Uh, the data analysis and all these things are continuous uh, um, interactions, which which happens, uh, discussions and all that. But uh, with, with the collaborators, uh, um, we it, it's only when we need, right? Like so, we we do not understand our data. We need some specific thing, like so whether what we're doing is right or wrong. So then we set up a meeting with them and then uh, first explain, show the data, everything, okay then send a draft and the data to them and then uh, they will uh, come back at, at their community because they also are doing their own work and uh, they have to find time so some, something but there's some collaborators who are extremely prompt right 
so for example uh, i i send uh, a, a question to one of my senior um, professors and collaborators like so uh, is in us time so I, before going to bed if i send the question so next day morning when i wake up the answer is already there mm -hmm. like, keeping up pace with uh, such people is 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 challenge right so yeah, they shouldn't sure. they shouldn't lose interest or think that like i'm i'm uh, i'm not interested or i'm i'm slow exactly right? Because with five, exactly with five, six publications a year, that's what I still can't understand. I'm like, how is that even possible? Like, that's a lot of publications, you know, that's a lot of different papers that you're writing. So I'm just like, how are, like, how do you even find the time? I mean, clearly it's just all the combined effort with your collaborator, uh, with your collaborators and whatnot that even makes this possible. And um, another question I could have is, what do the collaborators collaborate on multiple projects with you like do you have a bunch of collaborators that you're really close with that you're like okay if i have any future project in this field i know i'm going to ask them or is it like new every time uh, i mean so so for example there are there's some collaborations which are going on for uh, i don't know uh, almost uh, 15 years wow, wow. Yeah. that's a long time <laughs> 15 years so it, it's it's just a frequency match, right? Like so, there's always like I mean, yes, there are people whom we would like to. Right? There are some people uh, who do most of the work, and uh, uh, you don't really feel at home, right? Mm -hmm, so right. that that won't move on forever, right? So it's one one problem and uh, switch off kind of thing. Right? There's there's some. Uh, who you, your frequency matches with them, then uh, the, the, it, it goes on. Right. Mm -hmm. That's important, right? Um, maybe a final question about photonics, because I was wondering about the process from going to electronics to photonics. Now, again, it might be super elementary, but like go back to when we when we originally thought of photonics. Right. We, I'm assuming electronics is already there, right? right. Electronics yeah. is already a thing. So our question is, how do we make electronics better? Was the photon our first choice into, right. into asking that question? Yeah, I guess so. Because uh, uh, early times, how was the communication? It was just by lighting fires, right? At, at different mm. uh, stations. Right? So light, light is always there. So light is always there. So I guess photon was was one of the first ones. So, I mean, working in this field, do, what where do you think or what do you think the next step is? I mean, we've already we've already kind of discussed what you think the goal for the field is, but in in terms of electronics, photonics, I guess one question could be: Do you think that like photonics itself will evolve? Like something new will come up electronics photonics something else or yeah. or do you think that photonics itself will you know just become much more powerful and just supersede electronics uh, so my uh, what i'm thinking my own uh, uh, view is that like so uh, near future will be a combination of electronics and photonics mm -hmm. okay integrating the ideas from electronics and photonics into designing a new device 
Like so, it'll it'll never be a pure photonics thing in in the sense that uh, how do you trigger? How do you modulate? Right? You you always need some external electric field or magnetic field or one more uh, optical beam. Right? So there is there's always uh, a combination which will be there. It's it's not just completely all optical, everything uh, photon, uh, but there will be a combination because uh, you can do a lot more if you can uh, uh, combine or apply external bias like electric field or magnetic field is combined. Okay, at least we, we, have a, we have a future. We have a future to see, very exciting future. Awesome. So yeah, we've talked about a lot of interesting topics today. It was awesome to have you on. Um, would you want to, do you want to maybe talk about anything else, anything in particular, want to just lay it on our audience, something about what you do or anything like that? So I'm learning metrology now, what metrology is all about, right? Uh, it, it's a completely different, uh, ball game, right? Wait, um, sorry. What is metrology? Sorry. I'm sorry. What so is metrology is the science of measurement, science and art of measurement. Okay. Right. Okay. So each uh, country has one uh, national metrology institute. Right. So uh, uh, NIST in US or uh, uh, NPL UK or NPL India. So these are officially the, the country has decided them to be the metrology institutes. Right. Okay. So. If, if you want, like, for example, we know about this kilogram, right? The, the prototype of a kilogram or a, mm -hmm. or a length bar, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, these are all kept in these institutes. Right? Mm. But in 2019, the, the countries, I mean, everybody uh, accepted that we should have new definitions, which are not based on prototypes, but uh, we should have uh, the fundamental, I mean, the, all the primary standards, the, for example, kg or uh, meter or uh, so, that, so these are all defined in terms of the fundamental constants, like the Planck's constant and the Boltzmann constant and Avogadro number. Right? So, uh, I mean, so people are right now um, they're developing these new uh, standards where primary standards to measure these different quantities. Right? So here uh, with, with uh, in, in a lab, we measure, we remeasure, right? Typically in my lab, like, so we do at least three different uh, times we repeat the same measurement and we repeat on multiple devices and then we get the uh, statistics and make sure that like, so what we're reporting is correct. Right? Uh, but still there are errors, right? And uh, we don't, necessarily give all the uh, error bars and everything in, in every publication or it, it's not needed, right? But here, everything is uh, in, in metrology, every small uh, uncertainty budget, we are using a voltmeter, you're using a current source, right? So how much is the uncertainty in when you're saying that you're measuring one millivolt or when you're saying you're you're passing one ampere current, right? So there is always, everything has to be taken into consideration and every single measurement has to be reproducible. Right? So it, it's, uh, it, it's pretty challenging and uh, 
possibly to, to set up like, so there's something called CMCs, like the calibration and measurement capability, right? So when, when we say like India has uh, the CMC for uh, say 10 volt uh, with uh, say 60 nanovolt uncertainty, right? That's what is the CMC which we have. So to set this, to, to get this CMC set up in the country and say that like India has this CMC, right? So it requires first set up the experiment, then set up the analysis method. Then there will be, uh, the world is divided into different zones. So the India comes under this Asia Pacific Metrology Program, right? So the APMP uh, reviewers will come and check these things. They say okay. Then it again goes to uh, CIPM or, or the international, I mean, world level uh, uh, reviewers come and then check out again. Right. So after all this, like, so there will be some intercomparison. The same sample is sent to multiple countries, and each of them measure and say, okay, this is what I'm measuring. And finally, they disclose, okay, this is the original value. Okay. So then they plot the entire thing. It's called the intercomparison uh, plot. Right. Then we know, right? Okay. So India has. 2.8 nanosecond uncertainty in in the in the time which we have like so the right so what we sent to uh, BIPM like so that's one of the best in the world so th these things are it takes two to five years right wow but because it it, it just like uh, one single institute is doing all this metrology work right. So the credit they get is is lot less compared to what a uh, what a scientist in a in, in any uh, lab. Uh, I mean, I, as I say, like so, I can publish seven papers in a year, but uh, I can't set up one CMC in one year, right? It takes two to five years. Right? Mm -hmm. So it, it's a lot more challenging and and completely different ball game, and and uh, the kind of precision, kind of uh, hard work goes into setting up these uh, uh, CMCs and, and facilities is, is uh, really mind-boggling. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that, that actually reminds me of like before the quantum revolution where scientists and physicists believed that everything was already discovered theoretically. The only thing that could be uh, advanced is in metrology and just being able to measure things more precisely. And then, you know, of course, we hit that barrier where it's like, wait, that is not, that's not all there is. But it's very cool to see that, um, you know, it's still, even though we've discovered that, you know, there are some things beyond the classical world, it's still very important to, you know, be able to perform measurements and be more precise and precise and accurate uh, in, in the measurements that we do. Right. Yeah, no, it's very, it's definitely very useful having the, yeah, this whole, this whole idea of measuring more and more precise objects or not objects, but measuring the same thing more and more, with more and yes. more precision. Exactly. Exactly. What, is there a limit? I'm, 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 there definitely is like an atom, like an atom's width, or I guess a quark's width, but is there a limit to the amount of precision we can get to? Like if we're trying to more accurately and more accurately and more accurately describe something, just like in electronics, when you want to put more and more and more transistors, there's a limit where quantum tunneling now occurs. So is there a limit? I'm assuming it would just be like the width of a atom or of a quark or something like that. I could be wrong. You can correct me. But is there a limit to precision? Right. I mean, people keep pushing the limits, right? Like, so 
uh, if you want to talk about length, right? So what's uncertainty you can go to. So eventually it has to be an atom or right. right. Mm -hmm. So right now people go up to picometer uh, precision, right? How do you how do you push, right? If if you are talking about optical coatings or something, right? It, uh, you, you need flatness, you need to check the flatness, you need to check the roughness of these surfaces. Right? Mm -hmm. So you need to go down to picometer uh, thing. Right? That, that's only the requirement. Right? But then if we have newer requirement, which says that like, no, we need uh, uh, better than picometer. Yes, of course, we need to push it uh, below and find ways. So it's always depending on, on the need and uh, necessity, I guess. I don't even think people understand the <laughs> the 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 small no that's not the word like how the small scale. Yeah, the scale the scale of a picometer and a femtometer and a like there's so like you can't even imagine these scales picometer being ten to the minus twelve meters is just right. is just I don't even like you can't even think of that you know and we're right. dealing with these at that scale so it's just it's just awesome. It's just awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I guess those were all the questions that we had for you today. Uh, we want to thank you for coming on to the podcast. For we sure. had a, a very good time today. Yeah, definitely. Thank I mean, you thank very you so much, much yeah. for, for this whole, for this whole, uh, for this whole thing here today and taking the time out of your day. I know it's quite late now. It might be getting uh, to, to hear, to come and sit with us today. So I just want to thank you taking it out of your Monday. No, Sunday. Sunday. No, it's Sunday night. Sunday night, Sunday night. Sorry, I'm bad. <laughs> I, I guess like but, it, it's more it's more challenging for you because it's the getting up and coming on it. Yeah. <laughs> it was no issue. <laughs> no issue, no issue at all. We're good with waking up. So yeah, um, to everybody that's listening to the podcast right now, make sure to follow us wherever you're listening. Come on YouTube and check out the video, and also subscribe and leave a comment. And uh, that's you know that's basically that's, all that's you need everything. to do. <laughs> so uh, yeah, thank you so much for listening. This was episode number 95. 95. Uh, yeah, I'm your host, Parker. And I'm Ray. And we shall see you soon. Bye, guys.